I appreciate that very much. Kelly, take your Bible, turn to 1 Kings. We'll be in 1 Kings chapter 14 today, 1 Kings, uh, making our way through this series, uh, God's Word to a Divided Kingdom, a thing that remains throughout this book is God's Word through His prophet keeps coming, and God speaks the truth uh, even though the kingdom is divided and the kings may not want to hear it, God's Word goes forth. I, I wonder, um, how does it feel when, um, when someone has been watching you and, you and evaluating you and you didn't realize it? Have you ever been in a situation like that? I, I, um, I, have, uh, I have often experienced that. It's usually embarrassing when you turn and you look and, and somebody's been watching what you're doing, thinking, and they usually have that look on their face like, what in the world do you think you're doing? Um, my, kids, uh, my kids watch what we do, and they watch what I do, and I have some copycats in my house, and uh, they will copy basically whatever you do. They will do it, uh, they, and, and that is a little bit of an interesting feeling that, that you are being watched and that someone is, 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 is not only watching you, but they're studying you, uh, and they're aware of everything and your mannerisms. And, um... and Have you ever actually been in the situation where you finally had a dawn, something dawn on you where you realized how other people perceived you? And it wasn't how you perceived yourself. Um, and then all of a sudden, it, 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 it like hits you like a bolt of lightning out of the blue. Oh, that's how people see me. Oh, no, that's terrible. And, and you get that feeling uh, how, people, how people think, how enlightening it is to recognize uh, how, you are, how you are perceived. Well, the Bible talks often about the eyes of the Lord, and today's message title is how God sees us. And we talk about the eyes of the Lord. I want to start with a little introduction here. There are three main things I think that God is referencing in the Bible when we talk about the eyes of the Lord. The first thing is we're seeing how God sees things, God's perspective on things. In Deuteronomy 13, it says, it says this, because you have listened to the voice of the Lord your God to keep all his commandments, which I command you to do this day, to do what is right, notice this phrase, in the eyes of the Lord. And what he's saying there is you're doing what is right from God's perspective, from God's point of view, not your point of view, God's point of view, which is the only point of view that truly matters, that you're doing what is right. There is, in fact, in evaluation, in God's eyes, there is an evaluation and there is a, a, a seeing and evaluating of mankind. Uh, in fact, how about this one? Uh, God sees everything. First, or Second Chronicles sixteen nine. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. You notice God's eyes are able to see everything, and as He does that, there is this evaluative. There is this evaluation of seeing people, not just like, oh, I see that you're wearing a white shirt, but I see your character. I see who you are. In fact. Verses like these uh, point out it even more. Proverbs 5, for the ways of a man are before what? The eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. Or Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Those are the main two ways God's, the phrase, the eyes of the Lord are used in the Bible. But there's one other one, and that is this, that the eyes of the Lord often regards to his listening to and noticing the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. This passage today, what we're going to see is that God sees us, and as God sees us, He notices those who follow Him. So how does God see us? What's God's perspective on you? That's a big question. So let's look at this passage today and see that. Father, we ask Your wisdom and grace, understanding as we open Your Word. I pray, God, that You'd help us to have our hearts open to You right now. 
that we would be willing to listen to your truth and recognize you are the eternal and great judge and the great, the great king, the great creator, and you can discern the thoughts and intents of every man's heart. And so today, Father, as we gather before you, I pray that we would recognize this and not hide, knowing that you can see all. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Kings 14, let's look at the first few verses, if you'll follow along with me. In verse 1, it says, At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Please arise and disguise yourself, that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Indeed, Ahijah the prophet is there, who told me that I should be king over this people. Verse 3, Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what will become of the child. And Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see, for the eyes, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. The first point I want to make today from this passage is that God can see through any disguise. It's a very simple point, a very practical point but something that bears repeating over and over again because we make physical disguises to hide who we are to others, and normally it's not very successful. Uh, normally everyone knows who you are. Uh, if you put on a mask, everybody's like, oh, yes, I know who that is. Um, and, and normally the more mature you are, the more you realize how little disguises actually make an impact on deceiving others. But isn't it the case that we also have spiritual or non-physical disguises to lie about what's really going on in our hearts? We, we do this. Uh, we, what kind of disguises do we have? Well, I've listed three here. How about the disguise of the know-it-all, right? Uh, I've got everything under control. i got everything managed. I know what's going on. I am in complete control. I am the know-it-all. I have answers to everything. That's a disguise that people have. Sometimes people have the disguise of the blend-in, the don't-stick-out, that they don't want to get caught up in anything. So they're just like, I just want to show up. I don't want anybody to notice me. I want to blend in. Or the disguise of the person who has it under control. They pretend like they've got everything under control, everything is fine, and often fear is what causes us to seek out these disguises. Like Adam in the garden, we are afraid, so what do we do? We hide or we disguise ourselves. We, we get away from God. We don't want God to, to see us. And the first thing we see here is that people will try to deceive God. It is just the way things go. In this case, we have Jeroboam's wife. Jeroboam sends his wife out instead of himself, and he says, change your clothes before you go, you know, put on disguise and uh, go with these gifts, and he lists the gifts there. I, I, I think it's interesting. I don't exactly know. It doesn't tell us who she was trying to fool, pro- probably the prophet, Ahijah. So there is an easy mistake here to make. There's Abijah, right, the son, and Ahijah, the prophet. They're, they're different people. Obviously, Ahijah was the man who, who told Jeroboam that he would receive the, uh, the ten tribes once the kingdom was split in half. And so, Jeroboam wants to find out some information. His son, Abijah, is sick, and he's afraid of what might happen. So he says, wife, why don't you get dressed? Uh, Disguise yourself and go to the prophet. I know that he speaks for God because he told us about my kingdom, taking on the kingdom. So you go speak to the prophet and and make sure you disguise yourself uh, because I think possibly he doesn't want anyone else to see her going to the prophet. Maybe that's part of it. But also he's hoping that the prophet won't notice. And and so he gives her clothes that that would be for a common person and and a gift that would be for a common person. But I, I think everything about this trip 
that was designed to deceive and hide her identity. It's, it's really a fool's errand when you think about it. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. There's a comedy element in this whole story in that the prophet who she's going to see has a problem. What's that? He's blind. So what are you doing? Why are you disguising yourself to go to a blind prophet? It doesn't make any sense. But isn't that the case? We, we, do, we do things that don't make sense when we're fearful. Right? We, do, we do things all the time that don't make any sense at all. And so that's what happens. She goes and, and, and she wants to know about the, her, her son, but she's not supposed to tell him who she is. So how's that going to work out? I don't know. Right? So it really is a little bit of a fool's errand here. And it shows you that it's always the case when you think God can't see you, you do foolish things. It's just the fact. Think about Jonah, okay? Jonah wants to escape God, wants to run away, run away, run away from God. So what does he do? He go, hides in a boat in the bottom of the, of the boat and says, oh, God can't find me here. I'm going to run away from God. I think about uh, Cain. God confronts Cain about killing his brother. And what does Cain say? He's like, oh, what, what am I, my brother's keeper? He responds with sarcasm to God. Like, God, like, what, what, am I supposed to keep track of my little brother? And God says, look, his blood is crying out to me from the ground. You know exactly what you did? You think about, uh, I think about Achan. Achan steals all those clothes and those, the, the money from Jericho and hides it in his tent. Think, God says, don't touch that, don't steal that, and Achan thinks I can get away with it. When we, when, we, when we try to deceive God, we will inevitably do foolish things, but the truth is God will not be deceived. That's just the reality. God exposes the situation. Look at verse 5. The Lord had said to Ahijah, so God, God comes ahead of time and speaks to Ahijah and says, here is the wife of Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be that when she comes in, that she will pretend to be another woman. He tells the prophet what will happen before she comes. And although the prophet could not see, he could perceive because of the word of the Lord that this would be Jeroboam's wife. Verse 6, and so it was when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door. He said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. She doesn't even get a chance to give her gift. She doesn't get a chance to introduce herself or to portray anything. He knows already what's going to happen. So the prophet speaks directly to her and tells her that he has been sent to her with bad news, which is an interesting reversal because actually she was sent to him, but God sends him to her. Amen. And here he gives a message. There's a, a point here that, that the prophet will not, God will not be deceived. A, a, a familiar verse we all know, it says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, he'll reap. Be careful. Don't try to deceive God. God sees in your heart. He knows everything that's going on in your heart. He knows everything that's going on in my heart. He knows everything that's happening in your thoughts. God knows everything, and so don't be foolish because God can see through any disguise. The second point I want to make, beginning in verse 7 from this passage, I want us to see that God is angered when we discard him. Because it might make us uncomfortable to think about God's wrath or God's angry. Most of the time, I think, because when we're angry, it's almost always sinful anger that we show. So sometimes it's hard for us to think about God being angry because we know God is holy and God is perfect. And also, our culture today does not like the idea of God being angry. In our culture today, the best virtue you can have is that everybody gets along. But in the biblical, but the biblical text we have before us, the most important thing is truth, and the most important thing is God, and the most important thing is true worship. So anger is justified and proper when it expresses displeasure at that which is evil, that which is wrong. 
So if someone were to commit an act of violence against my family in my home, if a mob were to come and torch my home and burn up everything in it, I would be justifiably angry because they have done something wicked. We're not talking about a minor slight here. God is angry because when we sin against him, we are doing that which is rejecting him. We are rejecting the ultimate good, and God is angered when we discard him. Let's look at this first in verse, uh, verse 7, that God's gift was rejected. And go tell Jeroboam, so we're still listening to the prophet. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people, made you ruler over my people Israel, tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet, notice this, look at verse 8, and yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. But you have done more evil than all who were before you, for you have gone and made yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Here is the gift rejected. God said, I gave you a great gift. And this is a a message coming from God. The authority here is not just the prophet. He says, thus says the Lord God of Israel. God's grace was great to Jeroboam. He said, I took you and I exalted you. I made you who you are, God says. And because I made you over a ruler over my people, remember, they're my people, God says, not yours. And because I tore this kingdom away from David, you would think that Jeroboam would understand that God had done so much that he should owe loyalty to God, but this is not the case. Look at verse 8 again. He says, you have not been as David was, keeping the Lord's commandments. You did not follow the Lord with all your heart. You did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Once again, from God's perspective, this person disobeyed. He did what was right in his own eyes here, and this is the most important thing, that God's perspective is what matters the most, not what you think about it, matters what God thinks about it. And we have this all backwards in our culture and in many many homes today and in many hearts today, we have this backwards. The most important thing we think is, what do I like? What's important to me? And what God points out here is that in the eyes of God, this was wicked. Verse 9, if you look at this, he says, you were worse than all who were before you. What was the great sin that he committed. Well, the sin is laid out here as idolatry. Verse 9, you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images. And what was the result? You provoked me to anger. You provoked God to anger by casting God behind your back. The picture here is someone who throws something away just like throwing something away. Like there is something in front of you, you throw it behind your back. You don't want to think about it. It's almost like trash. God is saying, you treated me like trash. Now, when God talks about, when the Bible talks about provoking God to anger, the Bible teaches that God's wrath, God's anger burns against false worship. Now, when people come to God and worship him falsely, in fact, the Old Testament word wrath and anger is basically synonymous. There's a lot of overlap in meaning here. And the words I want to draw your attention here in this phrase is provoked to anger. It's used here and elsewhere. Whenever it's used in the Bible, this phrase is always used as God's response to people who are being unfaithful. That's very unusual that a word is only used in one context, and that's the case with this. Provoking to anger, God being provoked to anger, is is exclusively in this context that God's wrath burns against false worship. This is not just an Old Testament thing. In fact, look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 teaches us, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice again the key violating sin. 
verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. They are without excuse. Notice verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into what? An image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In other words, idolatry worshiping that which is not God. And it's more complicated than that because it's not just that they were bowing to a God. We'll talk about in a second what they're actually doing by their idolatry. This is really wicked stuff. And God's gift was rejected and God's wrath was provoked. I heard it once said that God's wrath needs to be provoked. His nature is mercy. When we're talked, we're supposed to provoke each other to love and good works, aren't we? Here he says God is just and then God's wrath is, or God's gift is rejected, but God's verdict is delivered. In verse 16, what happens next? How is God's wrath kindled? Verse 10, he says, therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. You have, you have come to the end, he says, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond or free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse or dung until it's all gone. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. The Lord has spoken. Arise, therefore, go to your own house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good towards the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. These are very harsh words. Very harsh words. In fact, he gives three main things. The first is that there's disaster coming. Verse 10, he says he'll be cut off. All the males will be cut off. They'll be removed the same way one shovels dung out of the way. Again, very harsh words. But dung may be about the least desirable thing there is. I mean, you just, you don't want it around. You want it gone. And God says, as you threw me behind your back, I am going to throw you behind my back. I'm going to shovel you out of the way, remove you, and we get dung as far away from people as possible. Like That's the whole idea. Get it out. We have whole sewer systems now built to basically get it out, get it away. In fact, even talking about it, I see some of you like cringing. You're like, please stop talking about this. This is gross. I th think about what God is saying. Think about the point God is saying. He's saying, I'm going to make your family like this. This is what's going to happen because you have rejected me and you have, you have done this. You, are, you do not get to do that and get away with it. I mean, the people of your family are not going to receive a proper burial. He says, you die in the city, the dogs are going to eat you. You die in the field, the birds are going to eat you. That's awful. Amen. It's awful stuff. In fact, the only person who's going to receive a burial is this child who is sick right now because they're going to die and everyone's going to mourn. And actually, there was something good in him that the Lord saw in him. And so God's going to give him mercy. But everyone else is going to be destroyed. In fact, it says in verse 11 that the word was delivered for the Lord has spoken. The word has been given. The word of this divided kingdom has been given. There's disaster. There's death. Go to your house, he says, before you can even see your child, your child will die. This is heartbreaking stuff. I have four kids. I love all four of my kids. And uh, I know some of you have had children pass away, and it's a terrible tragedy. It is an awful, awful thing. 
and the idea that your child will die and you will not be able to say goodbye is an equally horrible, horrifying thing. I know this is not fun to talk about, but this is what happens when people reject God. They will find that God's verdict is delivered against them. And here there's death and there is even a dynasty change. If you look at verse 14, he says, Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. He says, coming. You, you're, you're going to be cut off, and I'm going to raise someone else. And the way this next phrase is, it's almost like it's even happening right now. What? Even now, verse 15, for the Lord will strike Israel as a reed shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from the good land which he gave, gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they have made their wooden images, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, who sinned and made Israel to sin. There is an implication here that the disaster will come on the whole nation because of the sins of the leaders. As the leaders have fallen, and they have a great responsibility for their people. Look at verse 15. God will uproot Israel. This happened in 722 B.C. It's predicted here, and again it happens when Assyria comes and carries away the nation of Israel into exile. They were a good land would be gone. They would be scattered beyond the Euphrates River, and rather than removing the poles, the Asherah poles that they should have done, they installed them. They make them part of their worship. We see here God's verdict has been delivered. They were, as it says here, they were setting up their wooden images. Let's keep going. Look at the next passage. We see God's word fulfilled. Because as God spoke these things, it immediately happened. Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terza. That's where the, the kingdom was at that point, focused. And when she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war, how he reigned. Indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. The period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years so he rested with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. It's just like in 1 Kings 13, where there was a short-term fulfillment, which proved the long-term fulfillment. Here, in the short term, it happened just like it was predicted according to the word of the Lord, and so it would be the word of the Lord fulfilled later as well. And here's an application as we get to the end of this point, that casting God aside happens to those often who've been spoiled by God's grace. When you have experienced the grace of God over and over again, so many times people cast God aside and push, them behind the, push God behind their back. I've seen it in my life, and you've seen it in yours. We live in a country that has been blessed by God's grace abundantly, and what do we do? We push God aside. Amen. Happens to people all the time. The people who experience God's grace, we, we, we do this, we, we reject God, and that is a terrible thing. In fact, one other point I want to make out is that our, or make point, make clearly here is that our sinful choices have a terrible impact on those we love. I think often when we sin, we're only thinking of ourselves, right? We're thinking of the moment. We're thinking of what we want. But if we think about the consequences at all, what consequences are you thinking about? You're normally, if you think about the consequences, you're thinking about the consequences to your life. But I want you to think even further than that because our decisions have a blast radius. And when we make sinful choices, they not only affect us, they affect our families, they affect our, 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 our communities. In fact, if you're a leader as Jeroboam was, they have even a greater impact. Think about fathers. Fathers and your family, your decisions make a huge impact not only on your wife and on yourself but on your children. They make an impact on your children and on your grandchildren. Take, us, take a good look in the mirror and make a, make a decision 
that you're going to follow Jesus no matter how hard it gets, no matter what the temptations come your way. Because if you, if you commit adultery and you sleep with some other woman and you cause great disaster to fall upon your family, it will not just impact you, it will impact your kids. It will impact your grandkids. It will go on and on. And we've seen it happen with families that we love dearly. It's an awful, awful thing. So, so when you're a leader in a family and you make bad decisions and you make sinful decisions, pastors, it's the same kind of thing. So many pastors have failed and have caused ripple effects across the culture of their church and across, across their communities. They fail and people say, well, that pastor, oh, I don't trust him. I don't trust the Bible at all. And they walk away from the Lord because a leader failed. Amen. I think about also teachers. Teachers, you have an impact on the children and on the students in your life employers. How you sin impacts your employees. We, we think here that we can limit the, the danger, we can limit the damage to ourselves, but that's not the case. Here, Jeroboam sinned. It's that he led the whole nation into sin, and then his own family paid for it. That we talked about God's anger here. One more point here is that God is jealous for our worship. As we see here, we talk about God's jealousy and God's anger. They're both paired together in this passage. And why would God be jealous for our, our worship? First, let's look at this passage. We see in verse 21 through 24 that those who abandon true worship will embrace false worship. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Okay, let's stop for a second. Let's quick review. When we talk about the divided kingdom, we've got the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeroboam has been reigning in the north, and all that we just covered happened in the northern kingdom. Now we go to the south, where Jerusalem is. And that's the way the book of Kings goes, back and forth, back and forth. And so here we are with the southern kingdom talking about Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama, the Ammonitess. Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they committed, more than all their fathers had done. Notice what they did. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. There were also perverted persons in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. A quick point here that if you it, the alternative to embracing true worship is not embracing no worship. If you do not embrace worship of the true God, you will embrace false worship because we're made to worship. We are built to worship. We are people designed to worship, and we will worship something. We will either worship the Lord or we'll get sucked into worshiping paganism. That's just the way it works. Amen. I mean, think about it. Notice how they provoke the Lord to jealousy, verse 22. It says also we have this idea of jealousy given to us in the Scripture, provoking him, moving him to jealousy, Psalm 78 58, moving him to jealousy with their carved images, and they built high places. And these high places were two things. There were these sacred pillars, these monuments, and there were also these wooden images or these ashram poles, these, these basically like totem poles. And between these two worship things, the Canaanites would worship pagan deities, the male and the female. There was highly sexualized culture. And in this kind of uh, stuff, there was Canaanite worship. This was the reason that God had dispossessed them from the land, it tells us. And in fact, in verse 24, I don't know what translation you have, but my Bible says perverted persons, that is male cult prostitutes who worked at those shrines. There was prostitution, there was sexual deviancy, and there was immorality happening with pagan worship. Anytime there's paganism, 
there's immorality. Amen. And a lot of times when there's immorality, in the back door comes paganism. And here the pagan uh, desire to control God, we'll talk about that in a moment. I want you to notice God's jealousy. We talk about the word jealousy. What does it mean? The use of the word jealous, and in fact, in Genesis 30 and verse 1, the word jealous is used for envy. The word jealous in the Bible can be either positive or negative. It just means this idea of envious or jealous for something. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel was jealous of her sister. She envied her sister. In fact, God even gave Israel nations about the law of jealousy. When a husband has a wife who, is, who has been uh, immoral, who has been uh, seeing other people, he has a spirit of jealousy. There are a, 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 a rules that he has to follow. In fact, in Deuteronomy 32, it tells us that they provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. Again, jealousy and anger connected. And where jealousy, as I said, can either be negative or positive in our connection, in our connotation, but when God does it, it's always right. And, and here's my application with this. When, when, when people do not pursue God, they end up pursuing paganism. Here's how we see it in our culture today. We see a lot of people who don't worship God, they become infatuated with things like crystals, horoscopes, tarot card readings, witchcraft, and mysticism. It's, it's all over the place. And when people abandon the truth of God, they follow after these things. And those who abandon the truth of God embrace perverted sexuality. In the Old Testament, it was sacrificing children, destruction of the nuclear family unit, androgynous sexuality, transgender philosophies. They all deny God's plan for men and women. And when you step away from the truth of God, you embrace that which will harm you. And that's exactly what they were doing. God is jealous for us. God wants what's best for us. And when you abandon true worship, you'll embrace false worship. And those who embrace or those who abandon true worship will end up being humbled. And one of the main reasons or main elements of false worship is a reversal of the roles of God and man. Follow me here. A true worship says this, as Kelly's saying, thank you, Kelly, for that special today. Because as she says, true worship is this, I serve the Lord. His name is Lord. He is my master. I am his servant. I follow him. I do what he says. My job is to serve him. Here's what every other pagan philosophy is. I can use the world and use God to serve me. I get what I want by manipulating the world. Paganism is about manipulating gods to your own end. Paganism or demon worship has the same allure. Harness the power of the universe Harness the powers of nature, the zodiac, the crystals, the spirit guides, whatever it is to be powerful. And this is very alluring to people because it makes you in the place of God. It reverses God and man. It says, I use God for my purposes rather than I am used by God for his purposes. And so it's more than just people bowing down to a wooden altar. We're talking about a major damaging thing. And those who abandon true worship will be humbled because what happens, those who embrace false worship are exalting themselves rather than exalting God. Look at verse 25. It says that it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. Okay, so we have this king of Egypt named Shishak. He raids the temple. He carries off the treasures of God's house. Notice the repetition. If you have a pencil, you might want to circle. Took away, took away, took away, took away. Everything that was good, all the treasures in the house of the Lord, gone by this foreign king. He even took away the gold shields that Solomon had made that were part of the ritual worship in the temple. He took them away too. And what did Rehoboam do? What was he forced to do? Look at 27. 
so we had to replace them with bronze shields. Boy, that's humbling. You know, you, Dad had gold shields. I got bronze shields because the gold shields had to be taken away because we were not following the Lord. Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captain of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, he guards carried him and brought them back into the guard room. What an embarrassment. What a humiliation. And when you, when you seek to exalt yourself, you will be humble. This is God jealous for our worship. And as we conclude this, I have a few concluding thoughts. Again, we'll finish the chapter out. He says in verse 29, the rest of the acts of Rehoboam, all he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? And there was war or conflict between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers. He was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his mother's name was Nama the Ammonitess. Then Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. It matters how God sees us. In fact, at the bottom of your page, the bottom of your notes, I put this verse here, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And I want to turn your attention there. You can turn your Bible if you want. You can look at the bottom of your notes. Because this is the key. God sees exactly who you are. God sees everything is naked and open to him. You can put disguises on. You can pretend all you want in front of people. And you can fool a lot of people. But God cuts right to the heart. And really, the only thing that matters is what God sees and how God sees. And I want to ask you a question, a very serious question. That what does God see in your heart? Does God see someone who is saved by the blood of the Lamb of Jesus? Or does God see someone who is trying to work their way to heaven or is trying to be good enough, who believes they're a pretty good person, who has a hard time admitting to sin? I want you to notice how Paul talks about himself and how Jesus or how God sees him. Paul says in verse 8, Yet indeed I count all things loss. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. The word rubbish is another word for dung, frankly. This is the most I've talked about dung in a message, and who knows how long. (laughs) Paul says, all the good things I did, all the things that people would say, wow, that's an impressive person, look at his credentials. Paul says, I take all that, I count it as loss. I count it as a negative. In the, I, don't, I don't count it as a positive. I count it as a negative. I'm going to throw it away. Count it as dung for the excellency of knowing Christ. And look at verse 9, and being found in him. That's where it has to be. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He says, I consider everything I have to be worthless. To be in Christ is the most important thing. Because when I am in Christ, I, God will see me different. When I stand before the throne in heaven, once I die and I meet my Savior, I don't exactly know how this will go, but I imagine that God might look at me and say, why should I let you into heaven? I mean, look at you. You've done a lot of sin in your life. You've committed all, my, my wrath is against sin. And, and frankly, on my own righteousness, I have no merit for heaven. I have no reason to go to I have nothing I can offer on my own. But what he says here, being found in Jesus, I am not there on my own because I'm there with Jesus. And I say, I'm not here. I can't, you, you know, look at my life. It's not, it's not worthy of heaven, but I'm found in him. And you see all, you see everything. You see everything about my heart and you see everything about my life, but I'm with Jesus. And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And this is where I want to challenge you. How does God see you? God sees you. He knows, he knows you way better than I do. He knows you much better than I do. And, and God's wrath and God's jealousy is a real thing. And God, God is, God's wrath comes against the unright, unrighteous men. God's wrath comes against sin. And God's wrath will be dealt with. But when Jesus hung on the cross, here's what he did. He took all of God's wrath. The wrath of God was taken out on the Son of God, there on the cross, the act of love, which none of us can fully comprehend. Jesus died for me in my place, so when he died, he cried out, it is finished. Everything that needed to be done for our salvation has been accomplished, it's done. So now we have salvation in Jesus freely given to those who come to him in faith. Salvation, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. How does God see us? God sees us exactly right. And if, if, if you have not come to Christ, if you've not come to Jesus or not come to the Father through Jesus Christ, you are on your own, and that is a very scary place to be. It's a scary thing. Amen. It's a scary thing to be in the hands of a just and holy God. So would you come to Him and find mercy? While you are alive, while you are breathing, there is still time. Every day that God has given us on this earth is another day. If you've never trusted Christ, it's a day where He's given you mercy to turn to Him and to trust him for salvation. Would you do that? And Christian, if you already trusted Christ as your Savior, I challenge you today, God sees everything that's going on in your heart. Would you commit yourself to righteous and good worship to him? Make him the center of your life. Make him the Lord, not yourself. And recognize there's nothing we can hide from him. Let's be open with him. Let's be honest before him. How does God see us? Answer that question yourself. Father, we ask Today, as we come, we can talk about being before the cross of Jesus, where Jesus takes us and identifies himself with us and with a miracle that's amazing to consider that our, our righteousness is nothing, but his righteousness is everything. And he forgives every sin we've ever committed, and he purifies us and makes us his own so that through faith we become righteous in him. And today, God, we call out to you, we cry out to you, as those who need this salvation, we ask you, Lord, to please help us. Please, Lord, save us. Those who've never trusted you as their Savior, may today be the day where they, for the first time and the only time, they only need to once to call out to you and say, by faith today, I accept the gift of Jesus Christ, the gift of God, which is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, Lord, there's so much that we... we we try to hide as, as people. We're afraid. We, we cover so much. Lord, help us to be open and before you and, and then not be hiding our sin. And we thank you for warning passages like this that teach us of the severity of sin and how what we do has an impact on those around us. May we take seriously the commitment to true worship and not dabble with those things which are opposite you. And Lord, we pray today that you would warm our hearts to you. Help us to trust you fully and to walk with you as we should. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, hymn number 285, we're going to close as we sing. Uh, Charles will come and lead us. Would you stand as we sing Beneath the Cross of Jesus?